have a, a lot to cover today. I feel like that's been the story of the last few Sundays as we've started this study of, of worldviews. So if you're a guest with us this morning, welcome and thankful you're here. Um, we began a study of what, what Christians believe, what, what we think, actually, how Christians should think, what shapes and forms us. And we've been going through um, primarily Genesis the last few Sundays and looking at the creational aspect of the foundation of our faith. And so today we're going to be talking about opening up actually a new category of that study of, of something what has been termed as sphere sovereignty. I'll talk to you about that, what that means in a moment. <clears throat> and, um, and then we're going to focus on, on the family. And I am sure today to be an equal opportunity offender. Some may not like what I have to say, but I'm telling you how Christians see things and think. And that's what we want. We want God to shape how we think. And so, may the Lord's word, if it offends, may, may it cause our hearts to bow before him today. Um, little review that we've uh, started off talking about truth, and that's the foundation of all reality, and that is found in the word of God. This word is truth, and so we, as Christians, base everything in the scriptures, what does God say? It's the, one of the foundational questions for any belief is, well, who says? Christians say, God says, and that's what we follow and walk out. And then we went back to the beginning of Genesis and saw how God relates to humanity through covenant, which is a, a relational um, thing, not a contractual thing. We saw that the foundations of the Christian worldview is creation itself, all the way back to the beginning saw that, that the Christian faith or the gospel, if you will, can be summed up in three words. It's, it's the overarching story of the Bible of creation and fall and redemption. Creation and fall and redemption. And where it's heading is towards restoration. As creator, we saw that God has covenantally structured his cosmos according to his unbreakable laws and that our covenant creator reigns over all he has created. So all was good upon creation, but then the fall of Adam came in. They, they disobeyed God. They rebelled against what God had told them. The one thing he told them not to do, they did. And that was, a, that was an, an autonomy, a display of the fact that we want the ability to decide what's right for us, not God. The fall of Adam then was this cosmic rebellion against the covenant God, which disastrously affected all of creation. Ultimately, after the fall, we see the work of redemption in the work and person of Jesus Christ, who we said is our covenant head, and how he is progressively placing all things under his rightful reign. So that's a mouthful, but you're talking about a few hours of review in the midst of a couple of minutes. So if you need to go back and dive deeper into that, you can go to our website and, and listen to those sermons. But today we come into an aspect, we're going to, I'm not, I'm just borrowing the term from a guy who first um, spoke of it back in, in the 1800s, whose name was Abraham Kuyper, coined a term called sphere sovereignty. And there should be a slide going up about that. Can you pop that slide up, Annabelle? Sphere sovereignty. What is sphere sovereignty? Um, well, a lot of it, you see over the right here are these different circles. It's, it's the way that, 
that we look at Scripture, and it's, and it's a helpful structure to understand that God has created things in, in, in order and in structure in such a way that, number one, it, it starts at the top level with God himself. Abraham Kuyper said one of his probably his most famous line where he said, there's not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. He's the Lord of creation. We saw that as we opened our service in Matthew 28, 18, that all authority, Jesus said, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's the king. He's the ruler. He's the one who reigns. He's the creator. We are the creation. And so understanding sphere sovereignty, start, it's really about authority. But it always starts with the fact that God is sovereign. He's the Lord over everything. There's not one molecule outside of his command. And sphere sovereignty then is essentially that God has created various structures from the very beginning, and he's given them a particular norm, if you will, or a particular direction. The nature of the human person, the family, the the church, the state, There are actually norms that that govern these different spheres of authority. And it all begins with the doctrine of creation. It's a word, when we we speak of sphere sovereignty, obviously it's not a word you're going to find in your Bible, but in a similar way as you're not going to find the word trinity in your Bible, it's all over the Bible. And so with careful study of Scripture, there's been some helpful ways of helping us understand how we are to live and act in this world that God created. See, after the sovereignty of God and the doctrine of creation, the most, I think, helpful starting point is to say that the issue of sphere sovereignty is rooted in the notion that human beings are created as office bearers. We talked about that last week. As office bearers. Adam was put in the garden. He was called upon by God and given an office to run, to, 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 to subdue, to rule, to exercise dominion over his creation under God as a vicegerent. He was an office bearer. Last week we talked of how he held this office of prophet, priest, and king. And when you talk of an office, it suggests immediately limitation. Right? If you occupy an office, you have a limited function. I have the office of father, and I have a responsibility to my family, to my children. It's not the responsibility to father your children. My, my authority is limited in that office. And so the foundational idea is there cannot be more than one principle of absolute total sovereignty. Total sovereignty cannot be shared. Absolute sovereignty can only have one source, and that's Christ, according to Scripture. And then within the structure of creation, though, God has delegated his sovereign authority in different spheres, different delegated authority with limited jurisdiction to the family, to the state, to the church, and some of the various spheres that we could pull out here. We're going to deal with three in in the coming weeks. 
the three main ones, which are the family, the church, and the state. So we often don't grasp this because we as Christians have a ten, have, we've tended to limit the religious rule of Christ to the institutional church, to just one sphere. Like that's his, he has no authority anywhere else. What he says about anything else somehow doesn't matter. There's this dualism that's crept even into the Christian world and the church that, that thinks that somehow there's these, you know, sacred and secular divide. And what we do in here on a Sunday is sacred, but once you leave, all of a sudden it's secular and the, and, and the word of God has no, no difference, no matter. The scripture says, no, Jesus is Lord. Christ is the prophet, the high priest, the king. And just as Lord, Jesus occupies the position of total sovereignty. Revelation 1, verse 4 and 5 begins with these words, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. This is our God. This is where Christians stand. This is what Christians believe. This is what Christians live. Jesus Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And that position is the starting point for the Christian then to understand everything else. It's interesting. I don't know if you've ever thought this. I have. Have you ever had the thought, like, why doesn't God just come down and, like, zap certain situations? <laughs> like, what, I mean, if he's God and if he's ruling and Lord, why, why doesn't he just come down and, like, stomp out all the bad and, and, and just take care of all of my problems? And it's interesting to understand from the beginning God set something up. He set a structure in creation itself that put man in charge in a delegated way. Humanity was to, was to be the ones that would fulfill the creation mandate, the cultural mandate from Genesis. And so the fall certainly corrupted that. The gospel is to bring restoration of that. And that's where we're going today. And we're starting with the family. Because in many ways... The family has been challenged significantly in our culture, has it not? There's been a deconstructive postmodern thought which sees the nuclear family of dad and mom and children as some sort of, of demonic, hegemonic power structure which must be torn down and dismantled. Certain members of the community, including the LGBTQ plus community, often present themselves as, as, as upholders of, of family with a special emphasis on love. Family is whatever you want it to be. And that idea has become a dominant force in the dismantling of the notion of family that we have received from beginning, from, the, from creation, you say, that's old-fashioned. Those notions are old-fashioned. Yes, they are. They go all the way back to the beginning of time at creation. And they're by design. These are the truths that we have inherited from the Judeo-Christian worldview. And these attacks, which are numerous and many, and we'll deal with them a few weeks down the road, but, but they can be seen, for example, in, in, in Canada's recent passing of a bill which bans conversion therapy 
And, 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 and I don't have time to go into that, but the language of the bill, in essence, treads upon the sacred rights of parents to actually care for and protect their children. For example, the bill C4's definition of conversion therapy is so broad that it includes any practice meant to, quote, repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth, end quote. So theoretically, a three-year-old could return home from daycare and exclaim that their new pronouns are Z and Zim. And the parent, by suggesting to their child that they are incorrect, could be held accountable under the law. This is clearly an attack on the family and, and significantly challenges parental rights that are bestowed upon people, not by government, but by God. So I have four points this morning. That was a long introduction. Fasten your seatbelts. Point one, the foundational sphere of God's creation is the family. The foundational sphere of God's creation is the family. The family is God's basic institution as set forth from the beginning in creation. And in the midst of a day of, of, of moral morass, and confusion, it's essential that the church reclaim a Christian understanding and view of marriage and parenting and the family. The world may not understand it. Those outside the people of God may not understand it, but we should understand it. We can no longer assume that our society is built upon the same foundations or values that the church holds, right? The term family values in our culture means something completely different than what it used to just a few decades ago. But rather than rely upon assumed understanding of the importance of the family for society, we must show society the importance of the family by living out a Christian vision of what the family looks like, and that's where we're heading at the end today. To do that, we must have a robust theology of the family. And that robust theology is to be creational in its order and structure, as created and ordered by God in creation itself. I hope today to communicate that in a way that you understand. Point two, the family is creationally ordered and structured by God. We studied a few weeks ago the creation. We went through all the six days. We saw the seventh day of rest. We saw God many times declare over his creation, it was good, it was good, it was good. The dominion task was given to Adam and it was good. It was all very good, God declares in the end. But then we come to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, and all of a sudden, pre-fall, the sin had not come into the world yet. This is before the fall of Adam and Eve. God says there's one thing that's not good. Verse 18 of Genesis 2 says, The Lord God said it is not good. A man should be alone. And that language, I don't believe, necessitates that Adam was walking around drooping, <laughs> lonely, as if he had nothing to do. He was naming of all the animals and <laughs> tending the garden. You no, know, there was work in the garden, pre-fall. Those 
plants had to be tended to, the trees had to be tended to, the, the animals had to be cared for. Adam wasn't in the Garden of Eden floating on a cloud, sitting around with his feet propped up doing nothing. He was busy, busy taking dominion, busy doing the work of God, serving God in God's cosmic temple for his glory. So I don't take it to mean that he was somehow missing. He probably didn't even know what he was missing. God says, I will make a helper fit for him. Now, verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. He's busy about the work. He's taking dominion. He, he's, he's, he's cultivating God's creation. He's bringing it to flourish, flourishing. He's naming things. Lord, and in verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, he took one of his ribs. Reading in the ESV, you may have a different chance. Some translations say side, took from his side. Uh, the Hebrew go both ways there. Um, I kind of preferred side. Rib will work. <laughs> you don't know exactly what happened if God actually took an extra. Because I remember growing up as a kid hearing this thinking, does that mean, I mean, you ever done that, guys? Growing up in Sunday school, you count your ribs. Am I missing one? Because I heard that old tale that men miss, are missing a rib. Not true. Potentially, God may have taken one of Adam's ribs, I don't know, or he may have just taken some type of material from his side, but the point is, just as Adam was not created ex nihilo, he was created from the dust of the ground, woman now is created from material of Adam. He took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is poetry here. Guys, you should write some poetry once in a while. Good thing. Listen to Adam's. This is the first words in scripture from a human being. First recorded words. This at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall become Isha, woman. Because she was taken out of Ish. And verse 24, therefore, because of this creational fact, because of this, this creational order and structure of the way God did everything in his glorious sovereign wisdom, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Verse 24, by the way, is quoted by Jesus himself in talking about marriage. In their innocence, man and woman had no need for shame. There was no breach in their relationship with God. They're created in this beautiful place in innocence, in perfection, if you will. And here we see this amazing history of how God created woman as distinct from the rib or the side of man. And yet, 
man and woman are interdependent and created to be in covenant with God and, and with one another in this institution that we see right in front of us of marriage. That's what was happening. We just read a wedding ceremony officiated by God himself. Marriage is foundational in the order and structure of God in creation. Covenant marriage is the foundation of, of all of social order. In covenant marriage, we see one of the creational norms we talked of a few weeks ago, the male-female distinction. It's highlighted again in Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we have this image of God that's been stamped upon man and now woman who was taken out of man and man. Adam, in essence, is sharing his image bearing with his wife now. Adam's first lesson that he learns in the garden, if you will, from God is to recognize that there was no physical or intellectual or spiritual counterpart among the animals. There's a radical discontinuity between human beings created in God's image and the animal kingdom. And this is why you see certain prohibitions in the law of God against certain acts that are not to happen with animals. The creation of woman also from the side of Adam shatters the concepts of theistic evolution. Because you... I mean, they're all over the place on this one. You can't account for it. It also shatters the pagan concepts of androgynous humanity. If you read much of pagan mythology, there are so many stories of this androgynous first human that was somehow cut in two and split male and, and, and female and, and, and or could be both. And certainly we've seen a resurgence in, in, in this desire to go back to the pagan concepts of humanity being genderless, sexless, androgynous. Scripture says male and female were created distinct and utterly unique. We see in the creation of the woman how the woman takes the man's name, acknowledging his headship. We see the same thing happen in traditional mar marriage ceremonies even to this day. The Christian marriage ceremony or the, the, the Christian marriage becomes a, 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 a beautiful, serious thing where a woman is given away by her father to this man, and the man is to love and care for her and protect her, and she, she trusts him and takes his name upon herself. We see this all the way back at the beginning. And all of these things that we see in, in creation, they're not value judgments. Eve taking Adam's name, if you will, it's not a value judgment. It's certain, it, it's, it solely reflects the order of creation. It shows us that there is, a, there is a certain defined role that each is to play, male and female, that's distinctive to each other. Men and women are not androgynous. We are different. As the book says, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, right? 
And we understand that, married couples, right? Is your wife different, men? Is your, women, is your husband different? Come on. <laughs> See, but I'm not just talking about it at some kind of relational level. I'm talking about it at the fundamental creational level. At the order and structure that God built into creation itself in humanity. There's these defined roles. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 22 and 33, we see a description, one of the descriptions of the roles of husbands and wives. It says in verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. He said it. The S word. That tells you where we're at as a culture. When we would take one of the most beautiful aspects of the life of Jesus Christ himself, who was equal with the Father and the Spirit. None higher value, none better or greater. And yet Christ submits voluntarily to the Father in a beautiful display of the covenant bond and love. I suggest that if we as Christians don't like this word, we don't understand biblically what it means. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This is the creational order that God made when he made Eve. This is the design for female flourishing in marriage. Verse 25, the command then goes to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives. And I wish men would understand these next words. Self-included. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Laid his own life down for her. Didn't cling to his rights. Laid them down for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. She might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. How many men are shooting themselves in their own foot by the way they treat their wives? Don't get me going. Guys, come to the men's breakfast. That's where we'll talk about this. I got too much to share. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Do you recognize that? He's talking about the roles of marriage, the defined roles of husband and wife, man and woman, creationally ordered, not societally societally or culturally changing and shifting. It's the pattern of, of, of godly humanity in marriage. And then he says this in verse 32, this mystery is profound, and it is, 
And I'm just skimming the surface of it today. And I'm saying, Paul says, that it refers to Christ and the church. That, that, that your marriage, our marriage, and our understanding of submission and headship and, 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 and loving and caring and serving and leading and husbanding, all of that is a picture. It's a picture of Christ and the church. It's a mystery. And I almost see, it almost seems like God gave us marriage to point us to Christ. That your marriage ultimately is not even about you. It's about something deeper and greater than you. It's ordered and structured in creation, and it's to be walked out in the pattern of Christ. Even all the way back at the beginning of the, the, the side, this is one of a theory. I'm not saying this, but have you, I've often wondered that the side of Christ was pierced. The water and the blood flowed out. The blood that, that purchased his bride, that redeemed his bride, that set his bride free. We see this beautiful mystery all over Scripture. Marriage was created as a picture to show the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. And marriage is entered into voluntarily. And submission within marriage is a voluntary act of obedience to God. And love in marriage, truly loving your wife as Christ loves the church, is a voluntary act of obedience to God. And both of those things in this fallen world especially require hard work. It's part of the fault of, of one of the, the original temptation of Adam. Part of that temptation was this temptation in, in eating that fruit and having your eyes open. It, it, part of that temptation was a temptation of the easy way. I don't have to cultivate. I don't have to work at this. I, I can just have my eyes opened and presto, it's here. And there's too many of us as husbands and wives that still think the same and suffer from the same temptation. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. It's so hard. You don't know her. Submit to your husband. Respect him as, un, as unto the Lord. You don't know him. It's hard work. It needs grace of God. It takes a lot of effort. It's a voluntary act of obedience. Walking out the creational commands of God. Yes, it's been distorted by sin. And in, in its distortion, it's horrendously bad. Distorted by sin, man reverts from his dominion calling into sinful domination. He becomes a brute, tyrant, a terror, selfish, all about him, impatient. Or he becomes an abdic one who abdicates his role. One who does not take up his kingly role. To, to not dominate, but to take dominion, to cultivate. That's a, that's a word that lands probably better on us. To, to cultivate his life, cultivate his wife. See her, work hard to see her flourish. Leads to sinful domination and objectifying and abusing of women. And it's horrific. 
Likewise, women can hear the creational calling, structure, and order as laid out by the Apostle Paul and reject godly submission to their husbands for distorted forms of submission. See how deep sin runs. We're a world of women who would, would scoff at such a thought, but yet would run to watch the Fifty Shades of Grey and somehow see things like that as freedom. True freedom. Living God-ordained life by His grace. Say, what about equality? Men and women are equal in the image of God. We're all created equal in value before God, and yet, God's order entails distinctions and differentiation between people, right? By birth, by creation, I'm never going to run a race against Usain Bolt and win. <laughs> Made us different by design. And we must realize that the family is created by God. It's not a social construct that, that can be arbitrarily changed. But rather, according to Genesis chapter 2, it's a created set of relationships with each person given specifically defined roles in that relationship. And that's why the male-female distinction within marriage is so vital. Because the relationships within the family have set boundaries given to them by God for His glory and the good of mankind. Hermine Bavink, great theologian, writes this about the issue. He says, God is the creator of the human being and simultaneously also the inaugurator of sex and of sexual difference. This difference did not result from sin. It existed from the very beginning. It has its basis in creation. It is a revelation of God's will and sovereignty and is therefore wise and holy and good and therefore no one may misconstrue or despise this sexual difference either within one's own identity or in that of another person. The distinction between a man and a woman, a husband and wife, a mother and a father is something created by God and created by God as good and it lays the foundations for a healthy family. Marriage and then God willing, out of a marriage come children, let her be. Genesis 1.28 said, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. That was have lots of babies. <laughs> we read earlier in the dedication, Psalm 127.3, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the room is a reward. We need to carry that banner high in an age that despises children. From this male-female distinction united in the marriage covenant union comes the propagation of, of children, comes fruitfulness. And, and it's this obedience of children that is called to in Scripture when God commands them to honor their mother and their father that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Establishing parental authority over that child. That is the biblical picture of family life. 
Authority, by the way, that many in the world today would love to see removed. This leads to human flourishing. Herman Bovink again writes, this three-in-oneness of relationships and functions of qualities and gifts constitutes the foundation of all civilized society. The authority of the father, the love of the mother, and the obedience of the child form in their unity the threefold cord that binds together and sustains all relationships in human society. Family, therefore, is the foundation of society. And it's not any combination of some contractual individuals formed any way they want to, united together by a cultural definition of love. The family consists of a father and a mother and their children. It consists of grandchildren and grandparents and siblings. Of course, there's exceptions in the sense of some are infertile and not able to have children. Does that somehow mean that we are, you know, it, it doesn't make you not a family, a husband and wife. But the norm, the, the, the biblical creational norm is fruitfulness. Mom, dad, children. Something traceable all the way back to our first father, Adam. Point three, we also see that the family is the center of human formation. Truly human formation. Which means being conformed to the image of Christ. The true and only source of power in life. It's not violence. It's not money. It's not political office and power. The true source, the Holy Spirit. And, and his power manifest in a life of obedience to the gospel of God. The family is the place where moral formation occurs, where shaping occurs. The gospel, by its very definition, as the power of God unto salvation is transformational. It's powerful. And so the, the cause of transformation and renewal in every area of life is first and foremost the gospel of Jesus Christ. His salvation, his lordship, the, the declaration of his kingdom, his rule, his reign over all things... And we are transformed by that gospel, by a full-orbed gospel as, as individuals, as, as, as families, and thereby as a church. And when we are transformed, we'll then be transformed and prepared to engage culture at every level and to stand for the things of God. Better A, children are shaped and formed in the family. We have a word for that. It's called discipled. The Old Testament, it was the responsibility of the family, largely the parents, to teach the coming generation God's word. Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. That covered everything, right? Right? That's 24-7, 365. That's life. A life of teaching and training and shaping and forming and fashioning from love to children. The command of blessing to the children in Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. 
Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. See, the family is the primary place that disciples are made. Read Proverbs. The book of Proverbs, is just a lot of it is just a father teaching his son the ways of life, discipling his son. Or think of, of, of in Exodus, when God declared his character to Moses, he said that he would visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. The insinuation there is that sinfulness in the father will have its effects upon the children. Dads, that should make us tremble. And subsequently, their children. An act of God's grace. This only goes to the third and fourth generation. Simply put, the, the family is the place where human formation occurs. Somebody is going to disciple our children. It should be us. It should be you, parents. It's your primary responsibility. Not even the church's primary responsibility. It's yours. We should be about the business teaching our children, and we should want to raise our children not just to make a decision for Christ, but to make every decision for Christ. Children are shaped and formed. Letter B, also, parents are shaped and formed. How many of you have raised children that are adults now? How many of it shaped and fashioned you? <laughs> Molded and made you in so many ways, right? This formation's not just restricted to children. It's also something that occurs among moms and dads as they experience God's sanctifying work through the, the labor of parenting. Let me say the blessed labor of parenting. Ephesians 6.4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. A command not to the, only to the kids, but parents, dads in particular. Bavink Again, elaborates, which is a fantastic book, The Christian Family. Get it and read it. He says, the family exerts a reforming power upon the parents who would, who would recognize in the sensible, dutiful father the carefree youth of yesterday. And who would ever have imagined that the lighthearted girl would later be changed by her child into a mother who renders the greatest sacrifices with joyful acquiescence. Boy, that's true, isn't it? Moms are amazing. I just saw my wife twice this week give up her plate of food. Twice. I mentioned it to Will after, huh, Will? I said, do you see what moms do? What they do. Beautiful. The family transforms ambition into service, miserliness into munificence, the weak into strong, cowards into heroes, coarse fathers into mild lambs, tender-hearted mothers into ferocious lionesses. Imagine there were no marriage and family. Humanity would, to use Calvin's crass expression, turn into a pigsty. Family's the school of life because it is the fountain of life. And this should affect how we train our children. It should affect our education choices. Understanding education is never neutral. Don't buy the myth. Fourth and lastly, the restoration and revival of the Christian family is the key to the restoration and revival of everything else. What I mean by that? I mean everything else. The effects of the fall upon the family have been horrific. 
and the family remains attacked and undermined. And it's true. If, 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 you're going, if you can't attack God himself, what do you do if you're the enemy? You attack his image. The image of God is stamped upon humanity and is most highly and beautifully displayed in a mom and a dad, a husband and a wife and children. Family is attacked and undermined throughout culture and the world and even oftentimes among those who claim Christ. We have a, a playboy philosophy amongst men. We have easy adultery as entertainment. No fault divorce. Abortion on demand. Pornography in the pocket. All these different social pressures trying to rip apart the family. So we need a strong basis for Christian marriage and family. We have one in Genesis. When I do a wedding ceremony. Some of my opening words are this. Marriage is an honorable estate and not to be entered into lightly, but reverently with great care, one for the other, and great care concerning the will of God. For those of you here today, we've talked much about marriage, and I know several of you here aren't married today. And I want you to know that it does not make you abnormal. There's a gift of singleness that God gives, and, and yet if in your heart you have a desire to be married, even in your singleness, just know that's a good desire. Pray. pray and pray hard. Pray hard for a godly spouse. Pray hard and be very wise and careful how you choose. Get godly counsel and input. Don't rush into anything. Marriage is to be taken seriously. The assault on the family is the assault on the church too. All that God has ordered and structured in creation. He, he said it was all very good. We have pursued a very good our family life. And it takes courage, guys. It takes courage to have a Christian marriage today. It requires selflessness and faith on part of both husband and wife to have a lasting marriage in this culture. Why? There's a price to pay for loving your wife as Christ loved the church, and it hurts. Jesus hung on that cross. The nails hurt. Price to pay to love sacrificially. To submit to your husband in a marriage relationship as unto the Lord, there's a price to pay. There's many. You don't have to walk far out of this building to find many that would love to tell you how crazy and stupid that is. The way of God, the way of Christian marriage, even though now it is an increasingly scorned way of life, it's the only way of life as a future. It's the only way of life that gives our society any hope for the future. It's the only solid, lasting, faithful thing, Christian marriage. We as the people of God need to take care 
ensure that our hearts contrite before the Lord. We need to seek to reform our own families first. Not point the finger at all the others when we've got dirt on our own carpet. We need to stand for the family as an institution, as a creational norm. Stand for the distinctions as beautiful and right and good, male and female, beautiful, right and good. And on a day and a like ours today, with the cultural depravity and the perversion and apostasy being so aggressive today, anything less than intentional and intrepid oppositional Christianity is just going to get bulldozed over and assimilated. You say, Christianity as we've been used to just won't suffice anymore. But in order for that to come about, in order to have what I would say is a reformational, puritanical Christianity, the consecrated heart must come first. We need husbands who will actually love their wives. They fail, they'll learn to love. They'll love as it hurts. And they won't think about the hurt. They'll look forward to the joy, not for themselves, but the joy in their wife. She becomes a fruitful vine for the glory of God. The consecrated heart must come first. If we're going to have beauty in Christian marriage, we're going to need husbands who who are going to go home today and get on your face before God. Cry out to him for mercy and grace for how you have misled and abdicated your God-given role. Failed to love her as Christ loves the church. We'll need wives who by the grace of God will stand and say, I have failed to respect you. I have not submitted as unto the Lord. I've been like Eve and wanted my own authority, shaking my fist at God, denying his creational order. I pray God would grant repentance, faith, the joy that comes from such repentance and faith, reestablishment of Christian home creational family.